Well, we've sung a, a couple times tonight about God being a shepherd to us, and we'll sing some more about that later on. If you would, turn with me to John 10. John 10, the famous great shepherd chapter. What comes to mind when I say that Jesus is the good shepherd? What feelings does it conjure up to hear and to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd? I suspect feelings of comfort, warm feelings. I know for me, I have many times over the years turned in my Bible to John chapter 10 explicitly to find comfort, reassurance, love, closeness, compassion. At times, I've also been humbled by the other side of the analogy that I'm a sheep, slow, dumb, wayward, utterly dependent, unsafe. But even that leads me back quickly to the great comfort that is found in my shepherd's great strength and ability and watchfulness and care. Yet, in reading John 10 this week a little more closely than I have before, I saw quite clearly that it's not just a passage for comfort. It is equally, if not more so, a confrontation. Jesus' very words about his shepherding brought confusion at first and then great consternation to those who were hearing these words for the very first time. Jesus spoke these words in John 10 in a context of controversy. They were words meant to divide, to draw a line, to distinguish. And some there were so scandalized by what Jesus said that they eventually, look at verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. Or verse 20, they thought he was demonically possessed and or insane. So these words arise from a context of controversy. Many were scandalized by what Jesus said, but, but not all. I pray tonight you're not scandalized by what Jesus says and that you don't think he's insane. I do hope that you would understand why some would say that though. I hope you'll better understand tonight that there are only two possible responses to this great shepherd, and both are extreme, but that you yourself this evening would find comfort, renewed comfort, deeper comfort, greater assurance from these words of Jesus in John 10 about him shepherding his sheep. So let's read John 1. John, sorry, John 10, verses 1 to 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he's brought out all his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There are a few different movements in these 21 verses. The first six verses we might label a familiar familiar illustration of sheep and shepherding. It's a a familiar illustration, this sheep and shepherding thing. It's a multi-layered metaphor. John in verse 6 tells us it's a figure of speech. It's an illustration Now, we might notice that at first, in these first six verses, Jesus gives no explicit mention of the meaning of the the metaphor. He doesn't designate people with things or things with other things. He simply describes sheep and shepherding life. Imagine that he's going to lay out a jigsaw puzzle of sheep and shepherding and ask people to put themselves in this jigsaw puzzle to figure out where they stand with this shepherd. But at first, he simply puts the puzzle pieces out on the table as if to ask his hearers if they see anything. Do they see anything more than what's at face value of these pieces? They would have understood the face value of the pieces themselves. The question is whether they see anything more. Now remember, in Jesus' day in the ancient Near East, 
Shepherding was common enough that almost everyone would have been familiar with what these sayings meant there in verses 1 through 6. People who heard Jesus speak these words would know what a sheep pen is. They can picture that in their heads. They know that, that shepherds would put their sheep in a pen, and especially when traveling, they would lie themselves down at the gate, at the opening of the pen. And that's where they would sleep. Because then there's one way in, there's one way out. In that sense, the shepherd then is also the door or the gate. It's not a mixed metaphor. The same guy's just doing two different things. Part of his shepherding is being the gate. People in Jesus' day would also know that the thief or a robber of the sheep, wouldn't ever enter at the gate. There's a shepherd there. They would come in some other way, Jesus says. Jesus' hearers would also know that extended families and or neighbors would sometimes keep their sheep together in one pen, and that each shepherd had his own call for his sheep. Maybe a little flute or a little whistle or a word or a yelp, something that would call his sheep and his sheep would know that that's their shepherd's call and they would come. So look at Jesus' language. They hear his voice. Verse 4, they will follow him for they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow. They don't recognize the voice. Those are the puzzle pieces of the shepherding scene, and they're all familiar snapshots. Sheep and shepherd, a pen and a gate, a gatekeeper, robbers who try to get in another way, strangers in a true shepherd, his sheep, his voice, them hearing his voice and following him. Now these are, as John says, figures of speech, but figures of speech for what? Well, those in the story didn't get it, at first. None of them got it at first, but they could have. There are some clues in what comes in chapter 9 that can piece things together. Look over at chapter 9 just to get a glimpse of some things going on there. Chapter 9 at the beginning there, there's a great controversy that arises around Jesus after he heals a blind man. And that's why, remember, our reading ended with Chapter 10, verse 21, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You might have thought, why'd you bring up blind? Blind hasn't come up in this passage yet. Yeah, it was chapter 9. These go together. Remember, chapter headings were added much after John, the gospel writer, wrote these things down. And so there aren't these clean breaks between the chapters that we have in our English Bibles today. And we're we're wise to look back to something like chapter 9 to see why Jesus began talking about sheep and shepherds in the first place. And in chapter 9, it's the story of the blind man who was healed by Jesus rubbing mud in his eyes and then telling him to go wash it off. And then Jesus slips away. The man is healed. He can now see Jesus isn't around and so this blind guy, formerly blind guy, has got some explaining to do because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, need to investigate this. They got to get to the bottom of what happened. Was he really blind? Who is this guy who healed him if he was healed? How did he do it? 
Did he violate the Sabbath in the process? And these Pharisees are not looking to investigate this stuff objectively. Not at all. They need to prove that this wasn't special, this wasn't miraculous, whatever happened wasn't legitimate. And so look at chapter 9, verse 16. They start with this assumption. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, referring to Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Do such signs. And there was a division among them. Now verse 18. The Jews didn't believe that he'd been blind. This is referring to the guy who was healed and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son who says he was blind? How then does he now see? His parents affirmed. Yeah, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him how this happened and who it was that healed him. So, verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, we can skip to verse 33. If this man were not from God... This is the blind, formerly blind man testifying to the Pharisees. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. You only worship God. There are times in the Bible where someone goes to worship an angel or bows before an angel, and the angels seem to blush. They get all frustrated. They go, get up, get up, don't do that. I'm a created being like you. Jesus doesn't do that here. He receives this worship. It will not do, as the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons say at this passage, that he believed in the Lord Jesus and worshiped God. As if Jesus isn't God. No, the gospel writers would give us that kind of clue if they wanted to teach us that and not something else. The deity of Jesus is central to this passage. Who is he? Where did he come from? How does he heal? Is he really a sinner? Is he stealing glory from God? Or is he doing the work of God for the glory of God? Does he deserve to be thrown out or bowed down before? There's nothing in between. So now some of the 
shepherding language of chapter 10 and those first six verses can start to get pieced together a little bit. Remember, Jesus didn't draw all the lines. He just threw out the puzzle pieces. But now we can conclude, oh, okay, Jesus is the shepherd. He is calling sheep to himself. The sheep are hearing his voice and following. Not all, not all are his sheep. But the ones who come, they recognize him. They're not like bandits or imposters. The Pharisees are bandits and imposters. And they have no right to be in the pen. They have snuck in another way than through God. And they're not gathering the sheep as shepherds are supposed to do. They're not shepherding the sheep as shepherds are supposed to do. They are even casting away the sheep. It makes no sense to cast away the guy who got healed, who is only trying to reason with the Pharisees that a healing must be from God and not from the devil. The healed man proved Jesus' words that true sheep don't follow the voice of strangers, these Pharisees. They follow the voice of the true shepherd. So if we're reading carefully... In John's writing of the story, we can piece together what the illustration, that familial illustration of sheep and shepherd means. Now the connections can really come alive if we just look back to a couple of Old Testament texts. So bear with me. We're still going to read some more Bibles. It's going to be a little bit thick, but, but we should think in terms of the Old Testament promises and categories and metaphors of shepherds and sheep. It's rich, it's thorough, it's everywhere, and it gets poured into John 9 and 10. So listen to Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds, God says, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds, the spiritual leaders who care for my people, you've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then... I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, an offspring of King David, the shepherd who liked to think about how his Lord was also the shepherd. One more passage, Ezekiel 34. This is the big one. Would you turn there? It's worth having this in, in your Bible, maybe marked or at least noted. It should be a place you should be familiar with when we think about sheep and shepherds in the Bible. Ezekiel 34. Let me read this and, and hear it with John 9 and 10 in mind. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the spiritual leaders of Israel. Prophesy and say even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God 
Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they have scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and over all the high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, and none searched for them, or none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, and because there was no shepherd, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves. Therefore, you shepherds, and I'll just stop this section and get to where it turns a corner because it sounds the same note for 10 whole verses until verse 11. And there in verse 11, God says, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And there's this repetition of God saying, I will, I will do this. I will rescue them. I will bring them out. I will bring them into their land. I will feed them. I will care for them. I will, I will lead them to green pastures. They will lie down and graze. Verse 15, I myself will be their shepherd. I will myself make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. Forget you. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. Verse 17, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, I will judge between sheep and sheep. I'll divide between rams and goats. I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be prey. I'll judge between sheep and sheep. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd. Now remember God said he will do it. He will do it. He is the one. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. And he shall be their shepherd. This is written hundreds of years after David was dead. A long, long time after David had come and gone. And even in a season when there wasn't any Davidic king on the throne, God was saying, I'm going to shepherd my people. David will do it. That doesn't make any sense in the days of Ezekiel. doesn't make any sense until we come to find one who is both son of God, God himself, and son of David, a man. So can you see something of the significance of these prophecies in John 9 and 10? They all pointed ahead to Jesus. Jesus is God the shepherd. Jesus is the Davidic shepherd. So remember Jesus after the healing controversy where he was essentially confronting the wayward quote-unquote shepherds, the Pharisees, and their lack of shepherding by gathering, calling, Caring for, healing, binding up. Then he begins to talk in terms of shepherds and sheep. It was familiar in Old Testament times, not just because they saw shepherds shepherding sheep. 
on the hillsides, but because it was all over the Old Testament. Would they get it? Well, go back to John 10, verse 6. No, they don't get it. Verse 6. They did not understand what he was saying to them. And so now we move into a second section here in John 10. We could call it an explanation which comforts and or confronts. I think most of us are used to reading John 10 in a way that is personally comforting. And if we look at the context more carefully, we'll see it first confronts. In the first section, verses 1 through 6, Jesus explained that basic sheep and shepherd relationship as having, there's a gate and then a shepherd. And that's what he unpacks in the next section of verses 7 to 18. There's a gate section, that's verses 7 to 10, and then there's a good shepherd section, that's 11 to 18. So first, Jesus as the gate, I am the door is what it says in the ESV, but there are no doors for sheep pens. That should be translated gate. That seems obvious to me. I'm the gate. I'm the gate of the sheep pen. And you must enter by me. And anyone who enters by me is saved. So now we're in the world of metaphors, aren't we? Illustrations. It's explicit now. Lines are being drawn. The pen is salvation. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is not only a gate, a way to get in. He's the only way to get in. So this confronts before it comforts. You can't get in another way. You have to enter in. It really matters what he thinks of your heart. It really matters what you do with him. He's the only way in. As he'll say in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. But when you come to him, when you enter the pen of salvation in the household of God through the gate of the man, the shepherd, Jesus, well, verse 9, they go in and out in fine pasture. That means they're fed, they're safe, it's predictable, it's easy. It's going well for them. They go in, they go out, they find pasture. Verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What's abundant life? Is it eternal life? Yes, but not just life that lasts forever. If that's what you think of as eternal life, then you misunderstood Jesus. It's life now and eternal. It's life that's deep and rich and substantial and solid and weighty and meaningful. Not easy and not materialistically rich. Abundant life doesn't mean possessions or else Jesus missed out on abundant life. Your definition of abundant life better include the guy who was the captain of the team of abundant life, Jesus. He has abundant life and he gives abundant life. If we enter in, Jesus is the gate, the only gate, so enter in by him. 
Jesus is the good shepherd then, verses 11 to 18. It's already been hinted at, right, that Jesus is the shepherd. We could look back to verse 3 and now sort of get more meaning out of that. He seeks out his own sheep and knows them by name. We know now that's referring to Jesus. He goes before them, that is, he leads them, verse 4. His sheep know his voice. We can understand these things better now that we know, oh, this is all about Jesus, and this is in fulfillment of Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and so many other Old Testament passages as well. Or as we just saw in the gate section, still there, there are things that show us what is so good about this shepherd. Verse 9, he saves them. The sheep are led in and out of pasture in safety and abundance. They have life and they have it abundantly. And then in verses 11 to 18, more is added to that. And now it's more personalized and clarified than it was before. Verse 14, let's start there. He knows his own and they know him like the father and the son know each other. Now this isn't true in every way. There's no way that we can possibly know Jesus the same way that the Father knows Jesus. But there's some kind of connection there. There's some sort of shared DNA. We know Jesus like Father and Son know each other. I don't get that. I don't know what kind of DNA strands are there to, for Jesus to say that, but I believe it to be true, and it just about blows my mind. We're back to verse 11. He not only knows us, how does he know us and stay knowing us and not giving up on us? Verse 11, he lays his life down for the sheep. There are probably five statements along these lines in these verses about Jesus laying his life down for the sheep. That word for is so key here. Of course, this is talking about the cross, where he would die in the place of sinners for their sin. That word for is so important. It reminds us that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an example alone. It was a, a substitutionary payment for, for our sin and for the death we deserve. And here's where the metaphor of shepherd and sheep really gets stretched. It's pushed to the wall and Let's be honest, it's past the wall. In other words, shepherds would risk their lives for their sheep. David talked about that when he was a young shepherd boy. He fought off some bears, and he won by God's grace. He risked his life for the sheep. That's what shepherds do. Shepherds don't lay their lives down for the sheep. No shepherd says, well, a bear's coming from really far away. I guess I will... Just go and get eaten. You sheep, get out of here. This is, this is the end. But there's something about what Jesus did here that's along those lines. It's so sacrificial. It's so mind-blowing. He lays his life down, not risks his life, but gives it up for the sheep. And that is totally unlike the hired hands and wolves that have been leading Israel spiritually for centuries up until this point. The, the shepherd was supposed to risk his life for the sheep, go out for the sheep, care for the sheep, love the sheep at great cost, lead them 
with sacrifice, but they hadn't done that. Sheep are fleeing. The wolves are coming in. They're scattering. And the shepherds will even flee when it's dangerous. They care nothing for the sheep. This reminds me of Matthew 23 where Jesus says that the Pharisees load the people with great burdens but will not lift a finger for them. Isn't that what we saw in John 9? A man born blind. Instead of trying to objectively investigate what happened here, could God possibly be on the move in a powerful way? Oh, no, no, they are kicking out of the city anyone who thinks it may have anything to do with Jesus being the Christ. They assume he probably wasn't born blind until the parents prove otherwise. They think, well, if he did it, he must have done it through the power of Satan. He's, he's got a demon. He's a sinner. But Jesus is the shepherd and he lays his life down for the sheep. He's also gathering sheep from all over the globe. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, not Jew flock, Gentile flock over here. One flock, one shepherd. Again, all this confronts those in the story you okay with a shepherd who doesn't distinguish between Jew and Gentile? That's controversial. It jars the senses for those in this story. And this would jar the senses even more, verse 18, that he lays his life down of his own accord. And he has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. It's one thing to say, I have the authority to lay down my life. I can commit suicide. But Jesus didn't commit suicide, yet it's true. He laid down his life, did it volitionally, wasn't forced. But the most shocking thing of all, he says here, is that he has the authority to take up his life again. If someone says, you can kill me, but that's all right. I'll just pick up my life and start over again. You'd think that person is insane the word at the end of our passage he's he's insane verse 21 he's insane that's what they conclude but jesus is god or at least john makes it very clear here that jesus thinks he's god stack up the evidence with me jesus received worship back in chapter 9 verse 38 in view of what Jesus says about shepherds, shepherding and him being the shepherd, are those Old Testament texts of Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 where God said he would shepherd. Jesus is saying, I'm that shepherd. He's saying he's the only gate into heaven. He's saying that he has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again in the resurrection. Do you see how that passage then confronts and or comforts. 
Jesus as the shepherd means that all other imposters are out, their time is done. Jesus as the shepherd means that the foretold dividing between sheep and sheep or sheep and goats has already begun. In fact, he is the dividing line. You're either in or out based on what you do with him. So Jesus as the shepherd is no there there to the world. It's not a, an invitation merely to, to just come up little ooh lambs and, and sit a while while I stroke you. He's the shepherd. He's the shepherd. He is God the shepherd. And he comes with a, with a big old crook and with a sweet sound in his voice. What, what do you hear? You can dismiss it as a crazy man who thought he was a shepherd and never was. You can confuse him as a man who mixed metaphors. He's a gate. He's a shepherd. What are you, Jesus? Or you can think that this is all true, that there really was a man who was blind and he had no explanation for what happened other than some guy healed him. He once was blind and now he sees. His parents had no other explanation for it. And when this man finally encountered Jesus face to face and eye to eye and spoke with him and Jesus revealed that he was the son of man, this man could do nothing else but believe and worship him. So lastly, the last few verses of our section, a conclusion with only two possibilities. There's a conclusion with only two possibilities. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open eyes of the blind? And of course, a demon can't. There are only two possibilities. He's insane. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Get him out of here. At least get him out of here. If not, we must get him out of here by killing him. Or he is the fulfillment of the promises. He's the shepherd that we need. And he comes not only to declare who's in and who's out, but there's also invitation here, isn't there? Jesus isn't just saying, look, I got some people, and you're not them. You people who are mine, come, come over here. That's it. It's already settled. No, of course, God's election is in view here. Jesus is given sheep from the shepherd. But there's an invitation in this passage. It's not just a declaration. Jesus is the gate. So enter in. Enter into the only gate. Jesus is the shepherd. So hear him, hear him in this passage, begin to follow him, know him, identify yourself with him and with his sheep. See that his laid down life and his risen life was for you and be forever changed by it. Jesus is the gate, Jesus is the shepherd, Jesus is God, so you better get this right. Don't go his way or try him out for a little bit if you think there's a 70% chance this man was insane. But if you believe that he is God, then 
know that he's also good. Don't lose sight of any of the manifold blessings of his shepherding. There is so much comfort to be had on the other side of this confrontation. Several S's came to mind this week to think about, to think of what it means that Jesus is our shepherd. What, what has he done? Well, he seeks. He knows his sheep. He calls his sheep. He'll bring them in. He seeks them. He saves them. He rescues them. He satisfies them. It's not just forgiveness, but it's abundant life. Not just eternal life, but good life. He sacrifices himself in order to achieve these things. He lays his life down for the sheep. And all this, lastly, secures and makes safe. They're secure because he laid his life down for the sheep. They're secure because the shepherd is the gate. He let them in and he keeps them in. He's the gate and no bad guys are getting in. This shepherd is ultra-vigilant, omnivigilant. No thieves are breaking in. No one's getting the sheep from him. Look over, this goes on a little bit further from our passage. Verse 27 of chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. We are in Jesus' hand, in the Father's hand. Father and Son are one, and we're one with them. So know this evening that Jesus is who he said he is. Know this evening that what Jesus said he would do, he largely has done. He's laid his life down for the sheep. He took up his life again on the third day. Know that what else Jesus said he would do, he will do. He's the shepherd. He's the fulfillment. He's the answer. He's God in the flesh. What have you done with him? Can you see from this passage, there's no, there's no play in Switzerland with him, being neutral. Take a side. Take a side. Christian, what do you have in Jesus? I mean, just, I'd encourage you. If, you, if you're a journaling type, if you're not, do, do this on another piece of paper someplace else. Just list the manifold blessings that come from this passage alone, that he knows your name. He knows your name. He calls your name. You've heard his voice. You know him. He sups with you. He protects you. He is your shepherd. He is so patient with you, his sheep, as he is with me, his sheep. He is right now gathering more and more. He is making us one. He is the gate and the shepherd. He laid his life down for the sheep. He lays down as it were, at the gate of the pen and keeps us in and keeps all the harm out. In him is abundant life. 
So hear his voice and keep on listening. That's what sheep do. Keep, keep an ear out. Keep an ear out. Keep listening. Go to his word. Recognize who he is and keep growing in familiarity with it. In thankfulness and affection and communion. Follow him and keep following him. That's what sheep do. If tonight, Christian, you find yourself having gone astray a little bit, get back. Come back to him. Do not wait for his crook to hit your neck and leave a kind mark. Come back. It's safe in the pen. He's making us one. He doesn't want stray sheep. If you find yourself straying tonight, turn back. Turn back to the green pastures. Believe that what he says will feed us, does feed us. The Bible feeds us. Prayer feeds us. The church feeds us. This meal tonight that we have before us is a kind of feeding it's literally feeding us in a very small portion, but it is a spiritual nourishment. We ingest it. We take it in. It reminds us of what the Savior has done for us. So may tonight this supper of Jesus' torn body and spilled blood with all of its power to both convict of possible waywardness, but also cleanse guilty consciences. Let it do its work tonight by God's grace. Pray that God would work through the preaching of his word, through the prayers of the saints, and through the partaking of the Lord's Supper to feed us once again, to keep us close to him. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He's coming again. In the meantime, he is by his spirit with us. In the meantime, he's given us each other. He's given us his word. He's given us this meal. He is nourishing us.